You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome back to the Thunder Quack Podcast, the special edition of Amanda makes use of her theater degree by reading prose uh, to get by in these uncertain times, I think is what I called it the first time around. Uh, I am your host, Amanda Conkin, and this is another edition of Amanda Reads Frankenstein. Uh, This uh, edition will bring us to the end of the first part of the novel. So again, the novel has three parts, uh, reading this 1818 edition of Frankenstein uh, by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And in true Thunderquack fashion, I do have to say, I've kept commentaries in for the, so I read here chapters five, six, and seven with my commentaries after each of them. Uh, And as I'm saying, I'm going through and reading the novel for the first time. Uh, And upon reflection, I feel like my uh, analysis of chapter six maybe is not the best. So, uh, but I didn't want to edit it out because I feel like it's cheating in some way because I wanted it to be like a real reflection of how I'm going through and how I think we often read things where we have um, these thoughts or inspirations and then afterwards we're like maybe I should look into that a little bit further. So in true Amanda fashion I talk about how much I don't necessarily know and conjecture a lot but then I did actually go into Google and be like oh yeah this is it. So I sort of mentioned I was like yeah, I feel like Mary Shelley surrounded herself with a lot of famous people. And I do just want to point out, like, one of the most relevant things about Mary Shelley is just how prestigious her social circle was. And in the in the preface of the novel, you hear her talking about that summer that she spent and she had friends who they uh, read ghost stories and then they said, well, let's, uh, let's write some ghost stories. And she alludes to someone who would write a text uh, that would be a far better uh, or more importance or, or, uh, or uh, more relevance to, to the reader. And I just, of course, it was Lord Byron who was with her and who suggested that they actually write ghost stories. So I was like, oh, yeah, I think Lord Byron's important. But yes, of course, Lord Byron is important. That he was there the summer. And I mean, she's married to Percy Shelley, who is also another famous poet of the time. Um, and I guess, uh, who is her? Her sister is, I sort of like pulled up some of these things so that I could uh, actually reference them in talking. Claire Claremont was one of the other people that was around. Who is her, um, was a stepsister of Mary Shelley? And the mother of Lord Byron's daughter, Allegra. So I had mentioned in um, the chapter six that Ada Lovelace being one of his daughters, but her being another one. So Claire Claremont being very important to um, Byron's life um, and very entwined in Mary Shelley's. But of, of what I think is so interesting and intriguing is that when a novel like this comes about, that the circumstances of the author are in, are important. And I think that that who you are is is very much um, put into the work that you do. And one of the most interesting things about Shelley is not, not only who she surrounded herself, but also who her parents were. So I, uh, Wollstonecraft being the middle name for her, uh, or the, one of her last names, uh, is because her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who... Um, 
I hadn't researched that much about, but I do now recall being told that she was like very, like a feminist, like one of the first feminists or um, important feminist writers. And so when I was talking to myself and sparked upon me being like, isn't Mary Shelley related to all these famous people? I looked a little bit more into Mary Wollstonecraft. And of course, basically being one of the, like writing one of the most seminal works of like the early because she she died in like 1797 so in the 1700s writing texts called a vindication of the rights of woman right so just not only was she a feminist she was very much uh talking about how constitutions need to change because the only thing that really distinguishes is men from women is that women are less educated and her which I can only presume is a radical thing, having had a kid uh, before she married uh, Mary's uh, father or was with Mary's father, I guess, um, uh, who was William Go Godwin, Godwin or Goodwin, Godwin, G-O-D-W-I-N. I think I've mispronounced it a couple times. But um, one thing I really like about the way that they describe him is that they say he's one of the... Um, forefathers of the anarchist movement. So if you can imagine little Mary Shelley growing up uh, in a household in which her feminist mother and anarchist father uh, think education is a good thing and sort of inspire her to so some, some, uh, I just, I just don't know. I feel like you would, you would live a grand life and you would go on to do um, pretty awesome things. And then an, an interesting additional side to this is, so her, she's, uh, so uh, Mary Shelley, married to per, or did she get married i haven't really looked into it but percy uh bushy shelley i don't know how you say his middle name but um the poet she got together with him when he was previously married or they fell in love uh when uh she was pretty young and they met on her mother's grave uh site like on her mother's grave and I do again this is like these little recollections of like again learning of Mary Shelley when I was in school and hadn't really paid that much attention to it and now as a feminist myself when I'm growing up and being like who are all these awesome women that came before and and just again having this like renewed reverence for Mary Shelley as this sort of like awesome badass lady uh just doing what she was doing and I don't know, having sex on grave <laughs> graves and uh, doing, like, just deciding to be who she is. And um, I think when she went for the summer where she wrote Frankenstein, I don't think that they were married, but she was calling herself Mary Shelley or something like that. So, again, I haven't looked too much into it um, because I, I have, like, just finished the, the last three chapters and then went to research a little bit more before I did this introduction so that I could rightly correct myself in any uh, wronggivings that I might have had in, uh, in describing the chapters. But then now having just like skimmed the surface of Wikipedia being like, oh man, I want to look so much more into this really awesome lady. And, uh, and really it's just, it's just fascinating and exciting. So not only am I getting to read one of the seminal works of science fiction uh, in history, but I also am getting uh, to renew my, my love and interest in one of the awesome uh, feminist ladies of the uh, early 1800s. So I hope that you are inspired to look a little bit more into Mary Shelley uh, and her background and uh, who she is and who she was and who she was uh, related to and interacted with. And it's just it's so exciting. I think we know a lot about this particular person and the people around her because they wrote. And that history is that written history is so important for us getting a glimpse into who people are. 
And knowing about Mary uh, or about uh, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, a little bit is because her husband wrote uh, like a memoir about her life. And so we know more about her too through what people have written about them. So just this power of, of writing and uh, around us. And also something I do want to point out in, in Mary Shelley's uh, work and prose that you do see so much of this. I mean, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron both being astonishingly famous poets who really turn to nature and the beauty of nature and this like beautiful descriptive language. You also see that in the text. So specifically in these chapters that uh, you're about to listen to. Uh, so chapters five, six, and seven of the text where the reverence that uh, Victor Frankenstein has for his home country of, of, or his home city of Geneva and just of the beauty in Switzerland in his descriptions of these beautiful places that I think I did not pronounce correctly, surprising no one. Um, but you you can really see that that's just a part of of how Mary Shelley would describe stuff, or how she um, is is uh, attuned to the nature of the world, being I think very much because she is part of this co- this conversation with all of these other um, very um, naturally inclined men. Uh, who are also writing about the beauty of the world. So I think that that's interesting. I think it does inform the text a little bit when you when you know a little bit more about the background of the author in many ways. Um, and you can take that or leave that, right? Does a work exist? Uh, can a work exist uh, separate from the author or or must we always contextualize things? And I think that it uh, it doesn't hurt. I am I am one to to say that I think that. Um, that works are very much uh, tied to who it is that writes them. And I think that one of the things at least that has drawn me to Frankenstein and and where I have always um, been intrigued by it is that it was written by this young woman. And it became one of the most important works. I mean, everybody knows Frankenstein. Even if you don't know the actual novel, people know Frankenstein. And I think that that is a miraculous feat to have such an enduring impact on popular culture and on on the world and on uh, people's sensibilities. Uh, even if people don't know the actual context or or the the specificity of of where that uh, was created, but that Mary Shelley had a real impact on the world, um, and I think that that's very exciting, and I'm I'm pleased that people still get to remember her uh, these many years later, and uh, that we all get to reflect upon the words that she put on the page and how they relate to our own life. Um, and so as you go into these next chapters, I hope you enjoy the culmination of this first uh, part of Frankenstein. Lots happening in it. I don't know if my commentary is the most eloquent it has been. I think the previous couple chapters, I was a bit more um, able to sort of express and, and parallel things to, to everyday life. Um, whereas this was was much more getting into the substance of the of the narrative in a little bit more of a mystery and and that suspense and uh, sort of who whodunit nature. Uh, that I that I that I think maybe just as a as an audience I'm not as uh, familiar with and so I my perceptions don't go very uh, very deep I'm kind of like oh I think this is what happened and then in the next chapter I'm like oh wait no I don't think that that that's actually not what happened because this new information and I read that completely wrong which is exciting that's the ups and downs of novels and and stories in general and to be proven wrong is kind of interesting because it keeps keeps me on my toes uh so i hope that you enjoy and i uh i hope that you uh uh yeah i hope that you get something out of this and uh i'll see you on the other side frankenstein 
or the Modern Prometheus. Chapter 5. Clerval then put the following letter into my hands. To V. Frankenstein. My dear cousin, I cannot describe to you the uneasiness we have all felt concerning your health. We cannot help imagining that your friend Clerval conceals the extent of your disorder. For it is now several months since we have seen your handwriting, and all this time you have been obliged to dictate your letters to Henry. Surely, Victor, you must have been exceedingly ill, and this makes us all very wretched, as much so nearly as after the death of your dear mother. My uncle was almost persuaded that you were indeed dangerously ill and could hardly be restrained from undertaking a journey to Ingeslad. Clerval always writes that you are getting better, I eagerly hope that you will confirm this intelligence soon in your own handwriting. For indeed, indeed, Victor, we are all very miserable on this account. Relieve us from this fear, and we shall be the happiest creatures in the world. Your father's health is now so vigorous that he appears ten years younger since last winter. Ernest also is so much improved that you would hardly know him. He is now nearly sixteen, and has lost that sickly appearance which he had some years ago. He has grown quite robust and active. My uncle and I conversed a long time last night about what profession Ernest should follow. His constant illness when young has deprived him of the habits of application, and now that he enjoys good health, he is continually in the open air, climbing the hills or rowing on the lake. I therefore propose that he should be a farmer, which you know, cousin, is a favorite scheme of mine. Farmer, A farmer is a very healthy, happy life and the least hurtful, or rather the most beneficial, profession of any. My uncle had an idea of his being educated as an advocate, that through his interest he might become a judge. But, besides that he is not at all fitted for such an occupation, it is certainly more credible to cultivate the earth for the sustenance of man than to be the confident and sometimes the accomplice of his vices, which is the profession of a lawyer." I said that the employments of a prosperous farmer, if they were not more honorable, they were at least a happier species of occupation than that of a judge, whose misfortune it was always to meddle with the dark side of human nature. My uncle smiled and said that I ought to be an advocate myself, which put an end to the conversation on that subject. And now I must tell you a little story that will please and perhaps amuse you. Do you not remember Justine Moritz? Probably you do not. I will relate her history, therefore, in a few words. Madame Moritz, her mother, was a widow with four children, of whom Justine was the third. This girl had always been the favorite of her father, but, through a strange perversity, her mother could not endure her, and after the death of M. Moritz, treated her very ill. My aunt observed this, and when Justine was twelve years of age, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house. The Republican institutions of our country have produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. Hence, there is less distinction between the several classes of its inhabitants, and the lower orders being neither so poor nor so despised, their manners are more refined and moral. A servant in Geneva does not mean the same thing as a servant in France and England. Justine, thus received in our family, learned the duties of a servant's a condition which, in our fortunate country, does not include the idea of ignorance and a sacrifice of the dignity of a human being. After what I have said, I dare say you will well remember the heroine of my little tale, for Justine was a great favorite of yours. 
and I recollect you once remarked that if you were in an ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it, for the same reason that Aristo gives concerning the beauty of Angelica. She looked so frank-hearted and happy. My aunt conceived a great attachment for her, by which she was induced to give her an education superior to that which she had at first intended. This benefit was fully repaid. Justine was the most grateful little creature in the world. I do not mean that she made any professions. I never heard one pass her lips. But you could see by her eyes that she almost adored her protectress. Although her disposition was gray, and in many respects inconsiderate, yet she paid the greatest attention to every gesture of my aunt. She thought her the model of all excellence, and endeavored to imitate her phraseology and manners, so that even now she often reminds me of her. When my dearest aunt died, everyone was too much occupied in their own grief to notice poor Justine, who had attended her during her illness with the most anxious affection. Poor Justine was very ill, but other trials were reserved for her. One by one, her brothers and sister died, and her mother, with the exception of her neglected daughter, was left childless. The conscience of the woman was troubled. She began to think that the deaths of her favorites was a judgment from heaven to chastise her partiality. She was a Roman Catholic, and I believe her confessor confirmed the idea which she had conceived. Accordingly, a few months after your departure for Ingleslot, Justine was called home by her repentant mother. Poor girl, she wept when she quitted our house. She was much altered since the death of my aunt. Grief had given softness and a winning mildness to her manners, which had been, which had before been remarkable for vivacity. Nor was her residence at her mother's house of a nature to restore her gaiety. The poor woman was very vacillating in her repentance. She sometimes begged Justine to forgive her unkindness, but much oftener accused her of having caused the deaths of her brothers and sisters. Perpetually fretting at length threw Madame Moritz into a decline, which at first increased her irritability, but she is now at peace forever. She died on the first approach of cold weather at the beginning of this last winter. Justine has returned to us, and I assure you I love her tenderly. She is very clever and gentle and extremely pretty, as I mentioned before. Her mane and her expressions continually remind me of my dear aunt. I must say also a few words to you, my dear cousin, of little darling William. I wish you could see him. He is very tall of his age, with sweet laughing blue eyes, dark eyelashes, and curling hair. When he smiles, two little dimples appear on each cheek, which are rosy with health. He has already had one or two little wives, but Louisa Byron is his favorite, a pretty little girl of five years of age. Now, dear Victor, I dare say you wish to be indulged in the little gossip concerning the good people of Geneva. The pretty Miss Mainsfield has already received the congratulatory visits on her approaching marriage with the young Englishman John Melbourne, Esquire. Her ugly sister Manon married M. Duvald, the rich banker, last autumn. Your favorite schoolfellow, Louis Menor, has suffered several misfortunes since the departure of Clerval from Geneva, but he has already recovered his spirits and is reported to be on the point of marrying a very lively, friend, pretty French woman, Madame Travigneur. She is a widow and much older than Menor, but she is very much admired and a favorite with everybody. I have written myself into good spirits, dear cousin, yet I cannot conclude without again anxiously inquiring concerning your health. Dear Victor, if you are not very ill, write yourself and make your father and all of us happy, or I cannot bear to think of the other side of the question. My tears already flow. 
Adieu, dearest cousin. Elizabeth Lavenza. Geneva, March 18th, 1700. Dear, dear Elizabeth, I exclaimed when I had read her letter, I will write instantly and relieve them from the anxiety they must feel. I wrote, and this exertion greatly fatigued me. But my convalescence had commenced and proceeded regularly. In another fortnight, I was able to leave my chamber. One of my first duties on my recovery was to introduce Clerval to the several professors of the university. In doing this, I underwent a kind of rough usage, ill-befitting the wounds that my mind had sustained. Ever since that fatal night, the end of my labors, and the beginning of my misfortunes, I had conceived a violent antipathy, even in the name of natural philosophy. When I was otherwise quite restored to health, the sight of a chemical instrument would renew all the agony of my nervous symptoms. Henry saw this and had removed all of the apparatus from my view. He had also changed my apartment, for he perceived that I had acquired a dislike for the room which had previously been my laboratory. But these cares of Clerval were made of no avail when I visited the professors. M. Waldman inflicted torture when he praised with kindness and warmth the astonishing progress I had made in the sciences. He soon perceived that I disliked the subject, but not guessing the real cause, he attributed my feelings to modesty and changed the subject from my improvement to the science itself, with a desire, as I evidently saw, of drawing me out. What could I do? He meant to please, and he tormented me. I felt as if he had placed carefully, one by one, in my view those instruments which were to be afterwards used in putting me to a slow and cruel death. I writhed under his words, yet dared not exhibit the pain I felt. Clerval, whose eyes and feelings were always quick in discerning the sensations of others, declined the subject, alleging, in excuse, his total ignorance, and the conversation took a more general turn. I thanked my friend from my heart, but I did not speak. I saw plainly that he was surprised, but he never attempted to draw my secret from me. And although I loved him with a mixture of affection and reverence that knew no bounds, yet I could never persuade myself to confide in him the event which was so often present in my recollection, but which I feared the detail to another would only impress more de deeply. M. Kremp was not equally docile, and in my condition at that time of most insupportable sensitiveness, his harsh, blunt Economs gave me even more pain than the benevolent approbation of M. Waldman. Damn the fellow, he cried. Why, M. Clerval, I assure you he has outstripped us all. I stare if you please, but it is nevertheless true. A youngster who, but a few years ago, believed Cornelius Agrippa as firmly as the gospel, has now set himself at the head of the university. And if he is not soon pulled down, we shall all be out of continence. Aye, aye continued he, observing my face expressive of suffering. M. Frankenstein is modest, an excellent quality in a young man. Young men should be dividend in themselves, you know, Mr. Clerval. I was myself when young, but that wears out in a very short time. Mr. Kremp had now commenced a eulogy on himself, which happily turned the conversation from a subject that was so annoying to me. Clerval was no natural philosopher, his imagination was too vivid for the minutia of science. Languages were his principal study, and he sought, by acquiring their elements, to open a field for self-instruction on his return to Geneva. Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew gained his attention after he had made himself perfectly master of Greek and Latin. 
For my own part, idleness had ever been irksome to me, and now that I wished to fly from reflection and hated my former studies, I felt great relief in being the fellow pupil with my friend, and found not only instruction, but consolation in the works of the Orientalists. Their melancholy is soothing, and their joy elevating to a degree I never experienced in studying the authors of any other country. When you read their writings, life appears to consist in a warm sun and garden of roses, in the smiles and frowns of a fair enemy, and the fire that consumes your own heart. How different from the manly and heroic poetry of Greece and Rome. Summer passed away in these occupations, and my return to Geneva was fixed for the latter end of autumn. But being delayed by several accidents, winter and snow arrived, the roads were deemed impassable, and my journey was retarded until the ensuing spring. I felt this delay very bitterly, for I longed to see my native town and my beloved friends. My return had only been delayed so long from an unwillingness to leave Clairvaux in a strange place, before he had become acquainted with any of its inhabitants. The winter, however, was spent cheerfully, and although the spring was uncommonly late, when it came its beauty compensated for its dilatoriness. The month of May had already commenced, and I expected the letter daily which was to fix the date of my departure, when Henry proposed a pedestrian tour of the environs of Ingleslat that I might bid a personal farewell to the country I had so long inhabited. I acceded with pleasure to the proposition. I was fond of exercise, and Clerval had always been my favorite companion in the rambles of his nature that I had taken among the scenes of my native country. We passed a fortnight in these perambulations. My health and spirits had long been restored, and they gained additional strength from the salborious air I breathed, the natural incidents of our progress, and the conversation of my friend. Study had before secluded me from the intercourse of my fellow creatures, and rendered me unsocial, but Clerval called forth the better feelings of my heart. He again taught me to love the aspect of nature and the cheerful faces of children. Excellent friend, how serenely did you love me, and endeavor to elevate my mind until it was on a level with your own. A selfish pursuit had cramped and narrowed me until your gentleness and affection warmed and opened my senses. I became the same happy creature who, a few years ago, loving and beloved by all, had no sorrow or care. When happy, inanimate nature had the power of bestowing on me the most delightful sensations. A serene sky and a verdant fields filled me with ecstasy. The present season was indeed divine. The flowers of spring bloomed in the hedges, while those of summer were already in bud. I was undisturbed by thoughts which during the preceding year had pressed upon me, notwithstanding my endeavors to throw them off with an invincible burden. Henry rejoiced in my gaiety and sincerely sympathized in my feelings. He exerted himself to amuse me, while he expressed the sensations that filled his soul. The resources of his mind on this occasion were truly astonishing. His conversation was full of imagination, and very often, an imitation of the Persian and Arabic writers, he invented tales of wonderful fancy and passion. At other times, he repeated my favorite poems, or drew me in, out into arguments which he supported with great ingenuity. We returned to our college on a Sunday afternoon. The peasants were dancing, and everyone we met appeared gay and happy. My own spirits were high, and I bounded along with feelings of unbridled joy and hilarity. Okay, I don't have as much to say about this chapter. I think it's just a move move the story along, or move the time along kind of chapter. Um, I, you will notice that halfway through I realized that the M is for Mr. Like I sort of, I sort of clocked it the first time I said it, and I was like, wait, I think they meant Mr. 
And I just was, so I apologize for not actually like saying Mr. multiple times, but uh, I got the hang of it as it, as it went on. Um, uh, but otherwise cool that there was a letter. I, I don't know if I like said this in previously when there was letters, but the dates just say 17 and then dash. So it doesn't actually like say what the date is. And I don't know how to like extrapolate or how to say that verbally. I, I kind of tried to Google it and being like, how do you say the date 17 dash? And then the internet was less than helpful because it didn't quite understand what I was talking about. Um, I will say the first sort of hint of um, antiquated, uh, somewhat racial language, uh, racist language in uh, the term Orientalism being used in here um, to refer to um, uh, different uh, varieties of Asian culture. I remember, in, uh, again, in, in university studying uh, various, uh, like, descriptors, and um, there's a book called Orientalism by, I think it's Edward Said. Um, that's sort of just, like, an interesting um, deconstruction of Actually, I don't know if it's a deconstruction. I I read that book at the same time that I, we were, like, talking about the terminology and how it's used in, in history um, and in, uh, especially in, like, reference to um, literature and, um, and just cultural uh, examinations of the past. And uh, anyways, just, uh, just something to uh, consider in books that are from uh, times past. And actually kind of interesting that she's talking about Geneva. So, I mean, speaking of sort of antiquated uh, times and places, but um, that Geneva having less of a class structure than other uh, places and referencing specifically England and France and uh, that people in uh, positions of servitude having not uh, having a higher status or, or not seen in the same way that they would be in other places. I find that quite interesting and um, sort of a, a good uh, reflection on something that I hadn't thought of before. I didn't, I actually didn't know what Geneva was like in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. So that might be interesting to look into in the stratification of, um, I think, what is it? Like a, like it's a, it's a republic. So not having the same, um, like basically like kings and queens and, uh, you know, monarchies that caused many strifes in uh, that time period. So it's kind of interesting to examine and look at um, a place where that monarchies wasn't really a thing. And I hadn't really thought about that in, in terms of the context of, of the book. So kind of cool. Um, and I think that maybe they'll talk about Justine a little bit later. I think the next chapter is also a letter. Um, uh, so... I'll go into that, um, and hopefully I'm doing an okay job of uh, describe, like showing you uh, with my voice and change of diction going from the letters into the actual uh, text itself and, and going back and forth between Clarival and uh, Frankenstein. It, 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 it's a fun exercise for me to try. I feel like sometimes I do voices and I don't necessarily mean to and it's not like I'm planning to do them. If I had thought this through a little bit more, maybe I would have come up with some characters and uh, ways of speaking for people, but I do feel like my voice is a little affected with stuff. Also, I don't necessarily pronounce aunt, aunt, but it just felt like that's how she would, I don't know, I just like felt like saying aunt. I'm also noticing that I'm saying laboratory instead of laboratory. I've never really thought about how I pronounce it before, but when I'm reading in this particular kind of prose, I feel like my uh, A's are getting shorter. I guess is that, is that laboratory instead of laboratory? 
Ah, I think that's called a short A. I don't really know. I'm, it has been so long since I've been in school. This is such a fun exercise for me to just be like, what do I remember from English? And what do I remember from um, history? So uh, I, I hope that you are uh, discovering some things along with me and, uh, and realizing that uh, we all still have things to learn. And there's a lot of stuff that I could probably Google. Um, as we go through, there was, what was it? There was something else here. Oh yeah. There was a, a, whoever they noticed, they, the heroine of Orlando Furioso is the person that they referenced, I think when describing Justine. Um, so, uh, in terms of like her being someone that could make you, um, like go from ill humor to very happy or whatever, because, uh, it's a reason that Aristo gives concerning the beauty of Angelica. So I guess there's an Angelica is a heroine of a book by Aristo, <laughs> is what I assume they're talking about there. Um, but yeah, cool. Uh, people having similar problems way back, way back than people having nowadays in, uh, in many different ways. So, okay, I don't really have that much more to talk about uh, for this particular chapter. Let's move on to the next chapter. Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Chapter six. On my return, I found the following letter from my father. To the Frankenstein. My dear Victor, you have probably waited impatiently for a letter to fix the date of your return to us, and I was at first tempted to write only a few lines, merely mentioning the day on which I should expect you. But that would be a cruel kindness, and I dare not do it. What would be your surprise, my son, when you expected a happy and gay welcome to behold, on the contrary, tears and wretchedness? And how, Victor, can I relate our misfortune? Absence cannot have rendered you callous to our joys and griefs, and how shall I inflict pain on an absent child? I wish to prepare you for the woeful news, but I know it is impossible. Even now your eye skims over the page to seek the words which are to convey to you the horrible tidings. William is dead. That sweet child whose smiles delighted and warmed my heart, who was so gentle yet so gay, Victor, he is murdered. I will not attempt to console you, but will simply relate the circumstances of the transaction. Last Thursday, May 7th, I, my niece, and your two brothers went to walk in plain Pelias. The evening was warm and serene, and we prolonged our walk further than usual. It was already dusk before we thought of returning, and then we discovered that William and Ernest, who had gone on before, were not to be found. We accordingly rested on a seat until they should return. Presently, Ernest came and inquired if we had seen his brother. He said that they had been playing together, that William had run away to hide himself, and that he vainly sought for him, and afterwards waited for him a long time, but that he did not return. This account rather alarmed us, and we continued to search for him until night fell, when Elizabeth conjectured that he might have returned to the house. He was not there. We returned again with torches, for I could not rest when I thought that my sweet boy had lost himself and was exposed to all the damps and dews of night. Elizabeth also suffered extreme anguish. About five in the morning, I discovered my lovely boy, whom the night before I had seen blooming and active in health, stretched on the grass, livid and motionless. The print of the murderer's fingers was on his neck. He was conveyed home, and the anguish that was visible in my countenance betrayed the secret to Elizabeth. 
She was very earnest to see the corpse. At first, I attempted to prevent her, but she persisted, and entering the room where it lay, hastily examined the neck of the victim, and clasping her hands, exclaimed, "'Oh, God, I have murdered my darling infant!' She fainted and was restored with extreme difficulty. When she again lived, it was only to weep and sigh. She told me that that same evening, William had teased her to let him wear a very valuable miniature that she possessed of your mother. This picture is gone and was doubtless the temptation which urged the murderer to the deed. We have no trace of him at present, although our exertions to discover him are unremittent, but they will not restore my beloved William. Come, dearest Victor, you alone can console Elizabeth. She weeps continually and accuses herself unjustly as the cause of his death. Her words pierce my heart. We are all unhappy, but will not that be an additional motive for you, my son, to return and be our comforter? Your dear mother, alas, Victor, I now say, thank God she did not live to witness the cruel, miserable death of her youngest darling. Come, Victor. Not brooding thoughts of vengeance against the assassin, but with feelings of peace and gentleness that will heal instead of festering the wounds of our minds. Enter the house of mourning, my friend, but with kindness and affection for those who love you, and not with hatred for your enemies. Your affectionate and afflicted father, Alphonse Frankenstein, Geneva, May 12, 1700. Clerval who had watched my countenance as I read this letter, was surprised to observe the despair that succeeded to the joy I at first expressed on receiving news from my friends. I threw the letter on the table and covered my face with my hands. "'My dear Frankenstein,' exclaimed Henry, when he perceived my, me weep with bitterness, "'are you always to be unhappy? My dear friend, what has happened?' I motioned to him to take up the letter while I walked up and down the room in the extremest agitation." Tears also gushed from the eyes of Clerval as he read the account of my misfortune. "'I can offer you no consolation, my friend,' said he. "'Your disaster is irreparable. What do you intend to do?' "'To go instantly to Geneva. Come with me, Henry, to order the horses.' During our walk, Clerval endured to raise my spirits. He did not do this by common topics of consolation, but by exhibiting the truest sympathy.' Poor William, said he, that dear child, he now sleeps with his angel mother. His friends mourn and weep, but he is at rest. He does not now feel the murderer's grasp. Assad covers his gentle form, and he knows no pain. He can no longer be a fit subject for pity. The survivors are the greatest sufferers, and for them, time is the only consolation. Those maxims of the Stoics, that death was no evil, and that the mind of man ought to be superior to despair on the eternal absence of a beloved object, ought not to be urged. Even Cato wept over the dead body of his brother. Clerval spoke thus as we hurried through the streets. The words impressed themselves on my mind, and I remembered them afterwards in solitude. But now, as soon as the horses arrived, I hurried into the cabriole and bade farewell to my friends. My journey was very melancholy. At first I wished to hurry on, for I longed to console and sympathize with my loved and sorrowing friends. But when I drew near my native town, I slackened my progress. I could hardly sustain the multitude of feelings that crowded into my mind. I passed through scenes familiar to my youth, but which I had not seen for nearly six years. How altered everything might be during that time. One sudden and desolating change had taken place. 
but a thousand little circumstances might have by degrees worked other alterations, which, although they were done more tranquilly, might not be the less decisive. Fear overcame me. I dared not advance, dreading a thousand nameless evils that made me tremble, although I was unable to define them. I remained two days at Lucerne, in this painful state of mind. I contemplated the lake. The waters were placid. All around was calm, and the snowy mountains, the palaces of nature, were not changed. By degrees of calm and heavenly scene restored me, and I continued my journey towards Geneva. The road ran by the side of the lake, which became narrower as I approached my native town. I discovered more distinctly the black sides of Jura and the bright summit of Mont Blanc. I wept like a child. Dear mountains, my own beautiful lake, how do you welcome your wanderer? Your summits are clear, the sky and lake are blue and placid. Is this to prognosticate peace or to mock at my unhappiness? I fear, my friend, that I shall render myself tedious by dwelling on these preliminary circumstances, but they were days of comparative happiness, and I think of them with pleasure. My country, my beloved country, who but a native can tell the delight I took in again beholding thy streams, thy mountains, and more than all, thy lovely lake. Yet as I drew nearer home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around, and when I could hardly see the dark mountains, I felt some more gloomily. The picture appeared a vast and dim scene of evil, and I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of human beings. Alas, I prophesied truly, and failed only in one single circumstance, that in all the misery I imagined and dreaded, I did not conceive the hundredth part of the anguish I was destined to endure. It was completely dark when I arrived at, in the environs of Geneva. The gates of the town were already shut, and I was obliged to pass the night in Securon, a village half a league to the east of the city. The sky was serene, and as I was unable to rest, I resolved to visit the spot where my poor William had been murdered. As I could not pass through the town, I was obliged to cross the lake in a boat to arrive at Plain Pelias. During this short voyage, I saw the lightnings playing on the summit of Mont Blanc in the most beautiful figures. The storm appeared to approach rapidly, and on landing, I ascended a low hill that I might observe its progress. It advanced. The heavens were clouded, and I soon felt the rain coming slowly in large drops, but its violence quickly increased. I quitted my seat and walked on, although the darkness and storm increased every minute and the thunder burst with a terrific crash over my head. It was echoed from Selive to Juras and the Alps of Savoy. Vivid flashes of lightning dazzled my eyes, illuminating the lake, making it appear like a vast sheet of fire. Then, for an instant, everything seemed of a pitchy darkness, until the eye recovered itself from the preceding flash. The storm, as is often the case in Switzerland, appeared at once in various parts of the heavens. The most violent storm hung exactly north of the town, over that part of the lake which lies between promontory of Belrive and the village of Copiet. Another storm alighted Jura with faint flashes, and another darkened, and sometimes disclosed, the Molay, a peaked mountain to the east of the lake. While I watched the storm, so beautiful yet terrific, I wandered on with a hasty step. This noble war in the sky elevated my spirits. I clasped my hands and exclaimed aloud, William, dear angel, this is thy funeral, this thy dirge. 
As I said these words, I perceived in the gloom a figure which stole from behind a clump of trees near me. I stood fixed, gazing intently. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me. Its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect, more hideous than belongs to humanity, instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon, to whom I had given life. What did he there? Could he be, I shuddered at the conception, the murderer of my brother? No sooner did that idea cross my imagination than I became convinced of its truth. My teeth chattered, and I was forced to lean against a tree for support. The figure passed me quickly, and I lost it in the gloom. Nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child. He was the murderer. I could not doubt it. The mere presence of the idea was an irresistible proof of the fact. I thought of pursuing the devil, but it would have been in vain, for another flash discovered him to me hanging among the rocks of the nearly perpendicular ascent of Mont Salive, a hill that bounds Plain Plaus to the south. He soon reached the summit and disappeared. I remained motionless. The thunder ceased, but the rain still continued, and the scene was enveloped in an impenetrable darkness. I resolved in my mind the events which I had until now sought to forget. The whole train of my progress towards the creation, the appearance of my work of my own hands alive at my bedside, its departure. Two years had now nearly eclipsed since the night on which he first received life. And was this his first crime? Alas, I had turned loose into the world a depraved wretch whose delight was in carnage and misery. Had he not murdered my brother? No one can conceive the anguish I suffered during the remainder of the night, which I spent cold and wet in the open air. But I did not feel the inconvenience of the weather. My imagination was busy in scenes of evil and despair. I considered the being whom I had cast among mankind and endowed with the will and power to effect purposes of horror, such as the deed which he had now done, merely in the light of my own vampire, my own spirit let loose from the grave and forced to destroy all that was dear to me. Day dawned, and I directed my steps toward the town. The gates were open, and I hastened to my father's house. My first thought was to discover what I knew of the murderer, and cause instant pursuit to be made. But I paused when I reflected on the story that I had to tell. A being whom I myself had formed and endued with life had met me at midnight among the precipices of an inaccessible mountain. I remembered also the nervous fever with which I had been seized just at the time that I dated my creation, and which would give an air of delirium to a tale otherwise so utterly improbable. I well knew that if any other had communicated such a relation to me, I should have looked upon it as the ravings of insanity. Besides, the strange nature of the animal would elude all pursuit, even if I were so far credited as to persuade my relatives to commence it. Besides, of what use would be pursuit? Who could arrest a creature capable of scaling the overhanging sides of Mont Salive? These reflections determined me, and I resolved to remain silent. It was about five in the morning when I entered my father's house. I told the servants not to disturb the family, and went into the library to attend their usual hour of rising. Six years had elapsed, passed as a dream, but for one indelible trace, and I stood in the same place where I had last embraced my father before my departure for Ingolstadt. Beloved and respectable parent, he still remained to me. I gazed on the picture of my mother, which stood over the mantelpiece. 
It was a historical subject painted at my father's desire and represented Caroline Beaufort in an agony of despair, kneeling by the coffin of her dead father. Her garb was rustic and her cheek pale, but there was an air of dignity and beauty that hardly permitted the sentiment of pity. Below this picture was a miniature of William, and my tears flowed when I looked upon it. While I was thus engaged, Ernest entered. He had heard me arrive and hastened to welcome me. He expressed his sorrowful delight to see me. Welcome, my dearest Victor, he said. Ah, I wish you had come three months ago, and then you would have found us all joyous and delighted. But we are now unhappy, and I am afraid tears instead of smiles will be your welcome. Our father looks so sore, sorrowful. His dreadful event seems to have revived in his mind his grief on the death of Mama. Poor Elizabeth also is quite inconsolable. Ernest began to weep as he said these words. Do not, said I, welcome me thus. Try to be more calm that I may not be absolutely miserable the moment I enter my father's house after so long an absence. But tell me, how does my father support his misfortunes, and how is my poor Elizabeth? She indeed requires consolation. She accused herself of having caused the death of my brother, and that made her very wretched. But since the murderer has been discovered... The murderer discovered? Good God, how can that be? Who could attempt to pursue him? It is impossible. One might as well try to overtake the winds or confine a mountain stream with a straw. I do not know what you mean, but we were all very unhappy when she was discovered. No one could believe it at first, and now... Even Elizabeth will not be convinced, notwithstanding all the evidence. Indeed, who would credit that Justine Moritz, who was so amiable and fond of all the family, could at once become so extremely wicked? Justine Moritz? Poor, poor girl. Is she the accused? But it is wrongfully. Everyone knows that. No one believes it, surely, Ernest. No one did at first, but several circumstances came out that have almost forced conviction upon us, and her own behavior has been so confused as to add to the evidence of facts, a weight that, I fear, leaves no hope for doubt. But she will be tried today, and you will then hear all. He related that, the morning on which the murder of poor William had been discovered, Justine had been taken ill and confined to her bed, and after several days, one of the servants, happening to examine the apparel she had worn on the night of the murder, had discovered in her pocket the picture of my mother, which had been judged to be the temptation of the murderer. The servant instantly showed it to one of the others, who, without saying a word to any of the family, went to a magistrate, and upon hearing their disposition, Justine was apprehended. On being charged with the fact, the poor girl confirmed the suspicion in a great measure by her extreme confusion of manner. This was a strange tale, but it did not shake my faith, and I replied earnestly, You are all mistaken. I know the murderer. Justine, poor good Justine, is innocent. At that instant, my father entered. I saw unhappiness deeply impressed on his countenance, but he endeavored to welcome me cheerfully, and after we had exchanged our mournful greetings, would have introduced some other topic than that of our disaster, had not Ernest exclaimed, Good God, Papa, Victor says that he knows who was the murderer of poor William. We do also, unfortunately, replied my father, for indeed I had rather have been forever ignorant than have discovered so much depravity and ingratitude in one I valued so highly. My dear father, you are mistaken. Justine is innocent. If she is, God forbid that she should suffer as guilty. She is to be tried today, and I hope, I sincerely hope, that she will be acquitted. This speech calmed me. I was firmly convinced in my own mind that Justine, and indeed every human being, was guiltless of this murder.
I had no fear, therefore, that any circumstantial evidence could be brought forward strong enough to convict her, and in this assurance I calmed myself, expecting the trial with eagerness, but without prognosticating an evil result. We were soon joined by Elizabeth. Time had made great alterations in her form since I had last beheld her. Six years before, she had been a pretty, good-humored girl whom everyone loved and caressed. She was now a woman in stature and expression of countenance, which was uncommonly lovely. An open and capacious forehead gave indications of a good understanding, joined to great frankness of disposition. Her eyes were hazel and expressive of mildness, now through recent affliction allied to sadness. Her hair was of a rich dark auburn, her complexion fair, and her figure slight and graceful. She welcomed me with the greatest affection. Your arrival, my dear cousin, she said, fills me with hope. You perhaps will find some means to justify my poor guiltless Justine. Alas, who is safe if she be convicted of crime? I rely on her innocence as certainly as I do upon my own. Our misfortune is doubly hard to us. We have not only lost that lovely darling boy, but this poor girl, whom I sincerely love, is to be torn away by an even worse fate. If she is condemned, I never shall know joy more. But she will not. I am sure she will not. And then I shall be happy again, even after the sad death of my little William. She is innocent, my Elizabeth, said I. And that shall be proved. Fear nothing, but let your spirits be cheered by the assurance of her acquittal. How kind you are. Everyone else believes in her guilt, and that made me wretched, for I knew that it was impossible, and to see everyone else prejudiced in so deadly a manner rendered me hopeless and despairing, she wept. Sweet niece, said my father, dry your tears. If she is, as you believe, innocent, rely on the justice of our judges and the activity with which I shall prevent the slightest shadow of partiality. Ooh, intrigue. Okay, chapter six is done. Um, I feel I feel like there was a lot of um, weird cadence I had in this. I, I keep thinking that if I was recording like a, like an audiobook, that I would have the ability to go back and like say sentences in the cadence in which they're like meant to come across. So I apologize if that's confusing anybody at all, because sometimes there are things that I say that I'm like, oh, I probably should have like emphasized different words in that sentence, but. I hope that none of the suspense was taken away in my telling of it, uh, that this is the first murder mystery part of Frankenstein. So, what do you think? Do we think that the creature killed William, or do we think that Justine did? I like So this is getting to the, the interesting part where I actually, I, I don't know. Like, is this one of those circumstances where the monster is a monster and it was there and it wanted a picture and it accidentally killed a little boy and feels really bad about it like is frankenstein correct that it's like a beast and it and it killed or is frankenstein projecting onto the monster the evils that he thinks it must have and that actually justine in her in some sort of fit or ill ill manner uh wound up killing a boy i again maybe accidentally that i i mean the more interesting choice in my opinion is that justine is the murderer um, because it, it shows that parallel and I think, like, my inclination to the end of the story is that the monster didn't kill her, uh, kill William because it, I don't know, I think I find it, like, a little bit more interesting if it was Justine because people, like, she's, like, this, this young, like, innocent 
and she um, doesn't remember what happened and uh, like perhaps there was like a fit of a fit of insanity or a fit of um of of something that she doesn't understand and that she did um uh, like g inflict this this uh, inconceivable violence even though her disposition is one of of not perhaps leading to it whereas the monster who is this sort of wretched uh, creature who who is uh, very ferocious and 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 uh, well, I guess ferocious maybe they haven't shown for for ferocity or ferociousness but is very sort of strong and 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 large and seems like it could inflict a lot of pain and and uh, and and hurt actually didn't have the disposition to inflict that uh, torture because of the soundness of mind or something like that right because then then when we get what I'm hoping in the next couple bits would be to like what would motivate uh, the monster to, to kill somebody uh, because I feel like the the thing that we're exploring in these first few chapters is without like what is like the motivation or how how do you get there like did the did the monster was the monster created and evil as evil like was the monster created as evil or did the monster become evil and i i think or what i suspect again just knowing what i've read so far is that i feel like the monster lives up to all of frankenstein's expectations in the end but not doesn't start that way and it's only through his own manipulation of anyways i think that that's what happened it would be interesting to be proven wrong here where it's like of course the monster murdered him and it would be really interesting for people who have read frankenstein to be like amanda you're so ridiculous how do you not see that this is happening but this is the joy and uh exciting nature of of reading a novel along with the reader uh who uh who doesn't know what's actually going on um it's kind of it's kind of interesting to um, hypothesize, see what might happen. Um, there was some things that I pronounced here that I'm not quite sure what they are. A cabriole, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, and that's a two-wheeled, one-horse carriage. So I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. C-A-B-R-I-O-L-E. Oh my goodness, is that where the word cab comes from? Ooh, now I'm going to Google it, right? Maybe it is. Who knows? The tax. Anyways. Um, and, oh, man, I meant to Google this before, but they, they talk about Byron a lot. Um, and I feel like Byron was, uh, was part of that circle, maybe, of the people that Mary Shelley interacted with, right? Or was, I'm going to, I need to, I need to actually just like, uh, google this uh right away i haven't i haven't done that well i think this is a very um very uh um what is it professional of me <laughs> because i feel like she's related to very famous people and if i'm not saying it correctly um then i like might be oh hey goodwin who um we quoted earlier in saying different things was her dad I guess. Who, who was Mary Shelley? I, I don't know. Anyways, uh, I, I won't, I won't go and I, I'll, I'll research, I'll research different things here, but I feel like Byron is important to like, and relevant to her. I've been, I should, I should know more about Byron. Cause I did like a, like the movie Ada, uh, with, and Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer, uh, is the daughter of Byron think is interesting uh awesome ladies of the 18th century or 1800s sorry isn't that the 19th century 
Oh, man, this is, this is a crash course in school for me again in this chapter as it was the previous chapter. I'm sorry that the, the, the uh, commentary on this chapter might not be as uh, researched as it perhaps should be. Uh, but I think mostly I can talk a little bit more about the the cool nature of, of this being now uh, an intriguing and suspense-filled book. So this is our first, I think, um, real look at uh, the consequences of actions. Because so far we've sort of been like, what is the fear that, that Frankenstein has or what did lead to his misery? Because just creating the monster uh, hadn't really led to any specific consequences. But now we see if there is death and, um, and murder that's coming about, especially of his own family, uh, then yes, direct consequences uh, and fear, uh, no wonder, uh, abound. Okay, so I think... Because this is the second to last chapter of the first part that we should go into the last chapter of this part. So getting all the way through um, the first part um, with uh, chapter seven to follow. So uh, yeah, let's let's continue on and hopefully I'm a little bit more eloquent in my descriptions of uh, chapter seven than I was of chapter six. But uh, here we go. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus chapter seven. We passed a few sad hours until 11 o'clock when the trial was to commence. My father and the rest of the family being obliged to attend as witnesses, I accompanied them to the court. During the whole of this wretched mockery of justice, I suffered living torture. It was to be decided whether the result of my curiosity and lawless devices would cause the death of two of my fellow beings. One, a smiling babe full of innocence and joy. The other, far more dreadfully murdered, with every aggravation of infamy that could make the murderer memorable in horror. Justine also was a girl of merit and possessed qualities which promised to render her life happy. Now all was to be obliterated in an ignominious grave. And I, the cause. A thousand times rather would I have confessed myself guilty of the crime ascribed to Justine, but I was absent when it was committed, and such a declaration would have been considered as the ravings of a madman, it would not have exculpated her who suffered through me. The appearance of Justine was calm. She was dressed in mourning, and her countenance, always engaging, was rendered by the solemnity of her feelings exquisitely beautiful. Yet she appeared confident in innocence, and did not tremble, although gazed on and execrated by thousands, for all the kindness which her beauty might otherwise have excited was obliterated in the minds of the spectators of the by the imagination of the enormity of for all the kindness which her beauty might otherwise have excited was obliterated in the minds of the spectators by the imagination of the enormity she supposed to have committed. She was tranquil, yet her tranquility was evidently constrained, and as her confusion had before been Abdued as a proof of her guilt, she worked up her mind to an appearance of courage. When she entered the court, she threw her eyes round it and quickly discovered where she, we were seated. A tear seemed to dim her eye when she saw us, but she quickly recovered herself, and a look of sorrowful affection seemed to attest her utter guiltlessness. The trial began, and after the advocate against her had stated the charge, several witnesses were called. Several strange facts combined against her, which might have staggered anyone who had not such proof of her innocence as I had. She had been out the whole of the night on which the murder had been committed, and towards morning had been perceived by a market woman not far from the spot where the body of the murdered child had been afterwards found. 
The woman asked her what she did there, but she looked very strangely and only returned a confused and unintelligible answer. She returned to the house at eight o'clock, and when one inquired where she had passed the night, she replied that she had been looking for the child and demanded earnestly if anything had been heard concerning him. When shown the body, she fell into violent hysterics and kept her bed for several days. The picture was then produced, which the servant had found in her pocket, and when Elizabeth, in a faltering voice, proved that it was the same one proved that it was the same which, an hour before the child had been missed, she had placed round his neck, a murmur of horror and indignation filled the court. Justine was called on for her defense. As the trial had proceeded, her countenance had altered. Surprise, horror, and misery were strongly expressed. Sometimes she struggled with her tears. But when she was desired to plead, she collected her powers and spoke in an audible, although variable, voice. "'God knows,' she said, "'how entirely I am innocent.' But I do not pretend that my protestations should acquit me. I rest my innocence on the plain and simple explanation of the facts which have abduced against me, and I hope the character I have always borne will incline my judges to a favorable interpretation where any circumstance appears doubtful or suspicious. She then related that, by the permission of Elizabeth, she had passed the evening of the night on which the murder had been committed at the house of an aunt at Chenet a village situated at about a league from Geneva. On her return, at about nine o'clock, she met a man who asked her if she had seen anything of a child who was lost. She was alarmed by this account and passed several hours in looking for him when the gates of Geneva were shut, and she was forced to remain several hours of the night in a barn belonging to a cottage, being unwilling to call up the inhabitants, to whom she was well known. Unable to rest or sleep, she quitted her asylum early, that she might again endeavor to find my brother." If she had gone near the spot where his body lay, it was without her knowledge. That she had been bewildered when questioned by the market woman was not surprising, since she had passed a sleepless night and the fate of poor William was yet uncertain. Concerning the picture, she could give no account. I know, continued the unhappy victim, how heavily and fatally this one circumstance weighs against me, but I have no power of explaining it. And when I have expressed my utter ignorance, I am only left to conjecture concerning the probabilities by which it might have been placed in my pocket. But here, also, I am checked. I believe that I have no enemy on earth, and none surely would have been so wicked as to destroy me wantonly. Did the murderer place it there? I know of no opportunity afforded him for doing so. Or, if I had, why should he have stolen the jewel, to part with it again so soon? So soon. I commit my cause to the justice of my judges, yet I see no room for hope. I beg permission to have a few witnesses examined concerning my character, and if their testimony shall not outweigh my supposed guilt, I must be condemned, although I would pledge my salvation on my innocence. Several witnesses were called, who had known her for many years, and they spoke well of her, but fear and hatred of the crime of which they supported her guilty rendered them timorous and unwilling to come forward. Elizabeth saw even this last resource, her excellent dispositions and irreproachable conduct, about to fail the accused, when, although violently agitated, she desired permission to address the court. I am, she said, the cousin of the unhappy child who was murdered, or rather his sister, for I was educated by and have lived with his parents ever since, and even long before his birth. It may therefore be judged indecent of me to come forward on this occasion.' 
But when I see a fellow creature about to perish through the cowardice of her pretended friends, I wish to be allowed to speak, that I may say what I know of her character. I am well acquainted with the accused. I have lived in the same house with her at one time for five, and at another for nearly two years. During all that period, she appeared to me the most amiable and benevolent of human creatures. She nursed Madame Frankenstein, my aunt, in her last illness with the greatest affection and care, and afterwards attended her own mother during a tedious illness in a manner that excited the admiration of all who knew her. After which, she again lived in my uncle's house, where she was beloved by all the family. She was warmly attached to the child who is now dead and acted towards him like a most affectionate mother. For my own part, I do not hesitate to say that notwithstanding all the evidence produced against her, I believe, and rely on her perfect innocence. She had no temptation for such an action. As to the bauble on which the chief proof rests, if she had earnestly desired it, I should have willingly given it to her. So much do I esteem and value her. Excellent Elizabeth. A murmur of approbation was heard, but it was excited by her generous interference and not in favor of poor Justine, on whom the public indignation was turned with renewed violence, charging her with the blackest ingratitude. She herself wept as Elizabeth spoke, but she did not answer. My own agitation and anguish was extreme during the whole trial. I believed in her innocence. I knew it. Could the daemon who had, I did not for a minute doubt, murdered my brother, also in his hellish sport, have betrayed the innocent to death and ignominy? I could not sustain the horror of my situation, and when I perceived that the popular voice and the countenances of the judges had already condemned my unhappy victim, I rushed out of the court in agony. The tortures of the accused did not equal mine. She was sustained by innocence, but the fangs of remorse tore my bosom and would not forego their hold. I passed a night of unmingled wretchedness. In the morning, I went to the court. My lips and throats were par my lips and throat were parched. I dared not ask the fatal question, but I was known, and the officer guessed the cause of my visit. The ballots had been thrown. They were all black, and Justine was condemned. I cannot pretend to describe what I then felt. I had before experienced sensations of horror, and I have endeavored to bestow upon them adequate expressions, but words cannot convey an idea of the heart-sickening despair that I then endured. The person to whom I addressed myself added that Justine had already confessed her guilt. That evidence, he observed, was hardly required in so glaring a case. But I am glad of it, and indeed none of our judges like to condemn a criminal upon circumstantial evidence, be it ever so decisive. When I returned home, Elizabeth eagerly demanded the result. My cousin, replied I, it is decided as you may have expected. All judges had rather than ten innocent should suffer than one guilty should escape. But she has confessed. This was a dire blow to poor Elizabeth, who had relied with firmness upon Justine's innocence. Alas, said she, how shall I ever again believe in human benevolence? Justine, whom I loved and esteemed as my sister, how could she put on those smiles of innocence only to betray? Her mild eye seems incapable of any severity or ill humor, and yet she has committed a murder. Soon after, we heard that the poor victim had expressed a wish to see my cousin. My father wished her not to go, but said that he left it to her own judgment and feelings to decide. Yes, said Elizabeth, I will go, although she is guilty, and you, Victor, shall accompany me. I cannot go alone. The idea of this visit was torture to me, yet I could not refuse. We entered the gloomy prison chamber and beheld Justine sitting on some straw at the further end. Her hands were manacled and her head rested on her knees. She rose on seeing us enter 
and when we were left alone with her, she threw herself at the feet of Elizabeth, weeping bitterly. My cousin wept also. Oh, Justine, said she, why did you rob me of my last consolation? I relied on your innocence, and although I was then very wretched, I was not so miserable as I am now. And do you also believe that I am so very, very wicked? Do you also join with my enemies to crush me? Her voice was suffocated with sobs. Rise, my poor girl, said Elizabeth. Why do you kneel if you are innocent? I am not one of your enemies. I believed you guiltless, notwithstanding every evidence, until I heard that you yourself had declared your guilt. That report, you say, is false, and be assured, dear Justine, that nothing can shake my confidence in you for a moment but your own confession. I did confess, but I confessed a lie. I confessed that I might obtain absolution, but now that falsehood lies heavier at my heart than all my other sins. The God of heaven forgive me. Ever since I was condemned, my confessor has besieged me. He threatened and menaced until I almost began to think that I was the monster that he said I was. He threatened excommunication and hellfire in my last moments if I continued obdurate. Dear lady, I had none to support me. All looked on me as a wretch doomed to ignominy and perdition. What could I do? In an evil hour, I subscribed to a lie, and now only am I truly miserable. She paused, weeping, and then continued. I thought with horror, my sweet lady, that you should believe your Justine, whom your blessed aunt had so highly honored, and whom you loved, was a creature capable of a crime which none but the devil himself could have perpetuated. Dear William, dearest blessed child, I soon shall see you again in heaven where we shall all be happy. And that consoles me, going as I am to suffer ignominy and death. Oh, Justine, forgive me for having one moment distrusted you. Why did you confess? But do not mourn, my dear girl. I will everywhere proclaim your innocence and force belief. Yet you must die. You, my playfellow, my companion, my more than sister. I never can survive so horrible a misfortune. Dear sweet Elizabeth, do not weep. You ought to raise me with thoughts of a better life and elevate me from the petty cares of this world of injustice and strife. Do not you, excellent friend, drive me to despair. I will try to comfort you, but this, I fear, is an evil too deep and poignant to admit of consolation, for there is no hope. Yet heaven bless thee, my dearest Justine, with resignation and a confidence elevated beyond this world. Oh, how I hate its shows and mockeries. When one creature is murdered, another is immediately deprived of life in a slow, torturing manner. Then the executioners, their hands yet reeking with the blood of innocence, believe that they have done a great deed. They call this retribution, hateful name. When what word is pronounced, I know greater and more... When that word is pronounced, I know greater and more horrid punishments are going to be inflicted than the gloomiest tyrant has ever invented to satiate his utmost revenge. Yet this is not consolation for you, my Justine, unless indeed that you may glory in escaping from so miserable a den. Alas, I would I were in peace with my aunt and my lovely William, escaped from a world which is hateful to me and the visages of men which I abhor. Justine smiled languidly. This, dear lady, is despair and not resignation. I must not learn the lesson that you would teach me. Talk of something else, something that will bring peace and not increase misery. During this conversation, I had retired to a corner of the prison room where I could conceal the horrid anguish that possessed me. Despair. Who dared talk of that? The poor victim, who on the morrow was to pass the dreary boundary between life and death, 
felt not as I did, such deep and bitter agony. I gnashed my teeth and ground them together, uttering a groan that came from my inmost soul. Justine started. When she saw who it was, she approached me and said, Dear sir, you are very kind to visit me. You, I hope, do not believe that I am guilty. I could not answer. No, Justine, said Elizabeth. He is more convinced of your innocence than I was, for even when he heard that you had confessed, he did not credit it. I truly thank him. In these last moments, I feel the sincerest gratitude towards those who think of me with kindness. How sweet is the affection of others to such a wretch as I am. It removes more than half my misfortune, and I feel as if I could die in peace now that my innocence is acknowledged by you, dear lady, and your cousin. Thus the poor sufferer tried to comfort others and herself. She indeed gained the resignation she desired. But I, the true murderer, felt the never-dying worm alive in my bosom, which allowed of no hope or consolation. Elizabeth also wept and was unhappy, but hers also was the misery of innocence, which, like a cloud that passes over the fair moon, for a while hides but cannot tarnish its brightness. Anguish and despair had penetrated into the core of my heart. I bore a hell within me which nothing could extinguish. We stayed several hours with Justine, and it was with great difficulty that Elizabeth could tear herself away. I wish, cried she, that I were to die with you. I cannot live in this world of misery. Justine assumed an air of cheerfulness, while she, with difficulty, repressed her bitter tears. She embraced Elizabeth and said in a voice of half-suppressed emotion, Farewell, sweet lady, dearest Elizabeth, my beloved and only friend. May heaven in its bounty bless and preserve you. May this be the last misfortune that you will ever suffer. Live and be happy and make others so. As we returned, Elizabeth said, You know not, my dear Victor, how much I am relieved, now that I trust in the innocence of this unfortunate girl. I never could again have known peace if I had been deceived in my reliance on her. For the moment that I did believe her guilty, I felt an anguish that I could not have long sustained. Now my heart is lightened. The innocent suffers, but she whom I thought amiable and good has not betrayed the trust I repose in her, and I am consoled. Amiable cousin, such were your thoughts, mild and gentle as your own dear eyes and voice. But I, I was a wretch, and none ever conceived of the misery that I then endured. End of volume one. Okay. Uh, end of chapter seven. I feel like maybe the monster did kill uh, William after that chapter. Um, I, I, interesting. It's a good, it's fun. It's a fun story. And it's like a murder mystery, I guess, a little bit right now, um, which is interesting. But um, that if you are to look at um, Justine's account and how she came upon somebody who told her of the boy um, gone missing, do we think that that would have been the monster who at that point in time placed the uh, locket or whatever it is, visage, I guess, of the uh, mother on her? Is that maybe what happened? I don't know. Like, I'm is this, is this monster, like, out... Definitely uh, for revenge against Frankenstein. I guess it had been two years. And so in that time, he he grew in his hatred uh, and despised Frankenstein and uh, would have known of Justine because she wrote in, she was written about in the letter from um, Elizabeth to Frankenstein while he was sick and 
all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, this chapter did, this chapter made me think that maybe he actually was the, and you know, maybe I'm going to rely on Frankenstein a bit more as a narrator. It's one of those things where it's like, it takes a while to get into a book and you're like, is this a reliable narrator or an unreliable narrator? I think that's an interesting way to like, look at a story, especially that's told so much in the first person. Where you have to be like, this. the circumstances that he's describing are very much from his own point of view. Uh, and he's he is the one that's that's telling this tale. And so all the remembrances and all of the feelings that are go along with things are very much from his own, uh, his own perspectives. Which I maybe should have taken into account in him telling the story. Like there's been no indication that he was wrong in his estimation of, of, of the monster being the murderer. Do you want to call it a, a monster? He hasn't called it a monster yet. He calls it a daemon. Which is different than a demon. Like, I think it's because it's D-A-E-M-O-N. Daemon. Um, which I think is just like an interesting uh, term to use rather than uh, necessarily monster. Creature, I guess, is the best is the best way to say it. Um, so, yeah. I think going into the second part of the book, I will rely on Frankenstein a little bit more. Uh, perhaps as a reliable narrator because he is coming from a place of grief and misery and despair in his tale and he is telling it to somebody who he now does consider a friend and uh trying to trying to work through a few things on on his in his own uh, in his own mind uh so that's that's cool uh, i think it's interesting that the justice system here that they're talking about really relying on the justice system and uh and how uh how the trial goes and people not wanting to stand up and and speak on behalf of their friend and elizabeth i quite like elizabeth actually uh the more that i am seeing her in her interactions and that probably comes from there's some very well written women in this in this novel which i think might uh, be a direct consequence of it being written by a woman um but that elizabeth and the way that she talks about uh like her relationship with Victor and about her relationships with other people and just as this sort of very um, well-formed woman is uh, kind of nice and refreshing. And I do also like the way that Frankenstein describes all of the mothers um, and very sort of, um, there's a like a really good reverence for the characters, but also like the trials and the tribulations of each mother. So it's not like everybody is described as this sort of saint or angel um, because you do sort of see that like bitterness in Justine's mom and uh, that that relationship wasn't uh, very nice or, or well cultivated, um, but that there really was a love between uh, the um, definitely at least the Frankenstein's dad and, and his mom. Um, and that and that character, like that mom character and the death of the mom really actually playing a role throughout the the first part of this uh, novel as a really substantial um having a substantial emotional impact, not driving anything in 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 like a refrigerator girl kind of way or anything like that, but just in a in remembrance of uh, of it having consequences and people being like, well, this is the first time like the dad being like, this is the first time I've ever been happy that she isn't here because she doesn't have to deal with this grief and the death of this of her son. Um, but then at the same time, again, Frankenstein, in the death of of his brother, all of the feelings of the death of his mother coming through again. Or I think that's more so what Ernest is saying, too, when he is when he's like recounting uh, things to Frankenstein and and uh, and just being like, like that they had to deal with a little bit with this death and, and, and despair uh, a bit longer or a bit again after having it so soon. Um, so, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I think I, in the previous one, pronounced uh, God, Godwin wrong. Is, is, it, is it Goodwin or Godwin? It's, it might be Godwin, not Goodwin. G-O-D-W-I-N. 
Um, so yeah, apologies for that, uh, miscommunication. And yeah, I don't know if there's much else that I really want to talk about in this chapter. Um, maybe it, this chapter or the previous chapter too, there was lots of descriptions of places, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. And so I apologize if I mispronounced those places as well. Um, but okay. So Justine, uh, getting the death penalty, which is interesting. Um, and really like you see like that manacled in the, in the, anyways, it's very, it's very visceral. And, um, and you sort of see the, the torment in Frankenstein and him having to deal with the consequences of his actions, uh, in, uh, through the despair that Elizabeth feels and through this person that he, uh, very much connected with. So not only, uh, the death of his brother, but also the, the injustice that he feels his, uh, his dear friend or, uh, friend's friend is feeling. So yeah, you can see the why Frankenstein is upset. And, uh, when we're going into the next uh, few chapters and into the next part, I'm excited to explore a little bit further, uh, the turmoil of the life of Frankenstein and hopefully, uh, catch up eventually with this beastly creature who has, uh, absconced away. Absconced? Is that a word? Anyways. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to the first part of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.